0: And the thing is, after all these years, I still look back with wonder. Hey there, wonderlings! Welcome to the very first episode of Looking Back on My Wonder Years, A Wonder Years Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Bowen, and today I will be discussing the first two episodes of Season 1. Episode 1, The Pilot, which aired on January 31st, 1988, and Episode 2, entitled Swingers, which aired on March 22nd, 1988. But before I dive right into those two two episodes, let's get to know each other first a little bit, because after all, we are going to be spending a lot of time together as we go on this journey back in time through the wonder years. <laughs> See what I did there? Uh, anyway, as I said, I'm your host, Angela Bowen. This is my second rodeo at podcasting, my first being Punky Power on unofficial Punky Brewster podcast, which is a weekly podcast that I started about two months ago, that is currently on iTunes. I've currently finished recording the 8th episode of Season 1, so go check it out. I just started podcasting for my first time at the end of February of this year, and I absolutely love it. It's just me. I There's no co-host here. I decided to do this so I can kind of set my own schedule, and um, there aren't really many people that I know would, that would want to make this commitment only people the people doing currently doing their own podcast shows that I listen to I started listening to podcasts about two years ago when I decided I needed more than music and audio books to keep me entertained at my job see I work at a factory for eight hours a day so podcasts are perfect to whittle the day away the How Rude Full House Podcast and everywhere you, the everywhere you Look Full House Podcast, both are what started me on this amazing podcasting journey. These two podcasts gave me the idea that I could create something great by talking about something I love with the hopes of bringing joy and entertainment to listeners everywhere. I had listened to a lot of podcasts that were all done by either couples or a group of three, three or more people. It wasn't until I listened to the Stephen King cast podcast that I realized a one-person podcast could actually work. So with that in mind, I asked my husband Jeremy, his name will come up from time to time on here, for a Blue Yeti microphone for Christmas. And that's when I started developing my first podcast in late February, and now here I am in May working on podcast number two. Here's some fun, other fun facts about me. I'm a bookworm. I love to read. Audiobooks, regular books, what have you. I'm always reading something. I also love the color red. I have since I was a little kid. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, so right there you already know I watch some awesome television and movies. Saturday morning cartoons, anyone? A fan also of 90s country music, with your Garth Brooks, Tim McGraw, Reba McIntyre, all the good stuff. Also, the band Hanson, who sung Umbop back in 1997. I actually got to meet them back in 2011. As well as 80s music, 90s animal movies like Beethoven, Homer Bound, Andre, etc. Also, drama and comedy movies. I love trying limited edition foods, and I love almond M&M's. I have an almost four-year-old cat named Quinn. Her name will come up on occasion, and she may make an occasional appearance. While I'm recording, and a one-year-old rabbit named London, who you may hear him breathing in the background occasionally. I decided to do a podcast on The Wonder Years because I really enjoy the show and have since I watched it when I was young. The nostalgic feel of days gone by and longing for a simpler time just calls to me, as I'm sure it does to you as well. Just a quick note, this podcast will be uh, have a parental advisory label because um, occasionally I might talk about, uh, you know, I like... The idea of being able to be free and open about how I feel while I'm watching an episode. So you have been pre-warned. It won't be crazy, explicit, gross things. Maybe a little harsh language, mostly here and there. Alright, let's take and dust off that time machine and jump back to the year 1968, the time period of the first season of the Wonder Years. What was going on in the world at the time of this information? At the time. This information, of course, is courtesy of the website thepeoplehistory.com. Pop culture. 1968. The first Big Mac goes on sale at McDonald's costing 49 cents. The Beatles create Apple Records and record Hey Jude as the first single on the label. The CBS television news magazine program, 60 Minutes, shown for the first time. Musical Hair opens at Chefsbury Theater in London featuring nudity and drug taking. The popular films of 1968 were The Graduate, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, Bonnie and Clyde, Valley of the Dolls, The Odd Couple, Planet of the Apes, and Rosemary's Baby. As far as Popular musicians go. We have the Rolling Stones, the Supremes, the Beatles with Hey Jude, Fleetwood Mac, Aretha Franklin, Gary Puckett and the Union Gap, the Grateful Dead, the Monkees, Simon and Garfunkel, Mrs. Robinson, the Beach Boys, the Bee Gees, the Jimi Hendrix Experience, Cream, The Doors, Hello I Love You, Pink Floyd, Moody Blues, Bobby Goldsboro, and Marvin Gay, I Heard It Through the Gate. Great Grapevine, and David Bowie, which I didn't know they David Bowie uh, was around 68, but all right, let's see. Senator Robert Kennedy is assassinated on June 5th at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. President Johnson announces on Nationwide TV he would not run for another term of office. Uh, the contraceptive pill became popular. And Pope Paul bans Catholics from using the contraceptive pill for birth control. Let's look at the cost of living in 1968. How much things cost in 1968? Yearly inflation rate for USA is 4.27%. <clears throat> Excuse me. Average cost of a new house, 14950 Average income per year 7850, average monthly rent $130, gas per gallon is 37 or 34 cents, average cost of a new car $2822. Movie ticket prices back then were a buck 50, and the federal hourly minimum wage is $1.60 an hour. All right, let's take a quick ride in the DeLorean, jumping ahead 20 years to the year 1988 when this show premiered. Hold on one second. I do apologize for that. It's just the table lately banging against the wall. (laughs) All right, let's look at the cost of living in 1988. How much things cost in 1988? Yearly inflation rate, USA, 4.08%. We have the average cost of a new house, $91,600, and the income per year is $24,450, the monthly rent is $420, average price for a new car, $10,400, one gallon of gas back then cost 91 cents, and the average house price is $61,000. More uh, example prices movie tickets were three fifty US postage stamp twenty-four cents, a dozen eggs was sixty-five cents, two percent gallon of milk a buck eighty nine, pork chops were forty cents. Let's see. And Amiga computer with color monitor was eight hundred and forty-nine dollars. All right. Now I want to let you know, this is going to be a uh, bi-weekly podcast where I review and discuss two episodes each of The Wonder Years. I am not going through all of the seasons. This is a best-of podcast. I'm not going to go through every single episode, but I will choose my favorite episodes from each season. So, let's get started with the first episode of The Wonder Years, Season 1, Episode 1, The Pilot which aired on january thirty first, nineteen eighty eight. Let's find out what happened on this day back in nineteen eighty eight. Courtesy of the website Take Me Back to, shall we? It was let's see here. Uh it was a Sunday and Ronald Reagan was president. And that special week of January, people in the US were listening to Need You Tonight by NXS. And uh I think we're alone now by Tiffany. And Top Songs in the US in 1988. NXS Need You Tonight. Number two's Tiffany Could've Been. Bangles with Hazy Shade of Winter, number three. Number four, Michael Jackson's The Way You Make Me Feel. Expose number five with Seasons of ch- Seasons Change. Six, Roger, I wanna be your man. Seven, George Harrison, got my mind set on you. Uh, number 8, Eric Carmen with Hungry Eyes. Number 9, Elton John with Candle in the Wind. And number 10, Taylor Dane with Tell It to My Heart. And now some Wonder Years trivia for the pilot episode, courtesy of IMDb. In the pilot episode, Fred Savage, who plays Kevin Arnold, and Danica McKellar, who plays Winnie Cooper, shared their very first kiss. However, the kiss shown in the episode is not their actual first kiss. Six takes were filmed, and in the last take, Kevin stroked Winnie's hair. This is the shot that was kept. Here are some goofs for this episode. Kevin chooses clothes for the first day of school, fall nineteen sixty nine or 1968, while Tommy James and the Shondells' Crystal Blue Persuasion Plays. This record wasn't released until the following spring 1969. Kevin and Paul are seen reading Karen's feminist book, Our Bodies, Ourselves. This book was not published until 1973, and this episode takes place in 1968. Winnie's brother is drafted into military service in June 1968 and sent to Vietnam. The Selective Service System of the United States began the draft lottery on December 1st, 1969. Let's look at the soundtrack for this episode. We have Both Sides Now by Judy Collins, Turn, 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 performed by The Birds, Crystal Blue Persuasion performed by Tommy James and the Shondells, Come to Me Softly performed by The Fleetwoods, When a Man Loves a Woman performed by Percy Sledge. All right, enough stalling. Here we go. Here's the episode summary for the pilot episode. In 1968, friends Kevin Arnold, Paul Pfeiffer, and Winnie Cooper attend the newly renamed Robert F. Kennedy Junior High for the first time. We open up the episode with a theme song entitled With a Little Help from My Friends by Joe Crocker, playing while we are introduced to the cast in a fancy old projector strip, giving it an old-time classic feel setting out the scene in the 60s we see the family who we will soon learn is the arnold's standing in front of the house waving to the camera the first actor to be credited is fred savage who plays our main character twelve-year-old kevin arnold holding a baseball bat and then we have dan laria who plays the father jack arnold who's at the grill cooking burgers and hot dogs Allie Mills, who plays the mother, Norma Arnold, is then credited, <clears throat> Excuse me. she walks over to the kids with a plate of hot dogs. We go around the picnic table where all the kids are sitting. We are introduced to Karen Arnold, the older sister who's waving at the camera. We then jump cut to the next scene where we have Jason Hervey who plays older brother Wayne Arnold with Kevin Savage who are roughhousing on the grass. Then they see the camera on them and they fake hug. Danica McKellar who plays Winnie Cooper, Kevin Arnold's friend and later love interest on the show is introduced handing Kevin a football. Josh Saviano, who plays Kevin's best friend Paul Pfeiffer, is seen waving into the camera close-up and then running back to play football. Then the picture fades to black, and we see the credits created by Neil Marlins and Carol Black. The title of the show comes up on the screen. I love the yellow, red, and blue font. While the song Turn, Turn, Turn plays in the background, we see shots from the 60s up. Nixon, John Lennon, the Olympics, the police riots, protests, Martin Luther King Jr. March. Daniel Stern is Kevin Arnold, comes on narrating, setting the scene with the words 1968, I was 12 years old. A lot happened that year, and we see a shot of Bobby Kennedy. Denny McLean won 31 games. I had to look up who that was on Wikipedia. It says he played mostly for the Detroit Tigers and a... He was a pitcher who played for 10 seasons, and in 1968, he became the last pitcher and in Major League Baseball to win 30 or more games in a season, a feat only accomplished by 11 players in the 20th century. Right. The Mod Squad hit the air, adult Kevin narrates, as we see a storefront window being set on fire, and I graduated from Hillcrest Elementary and entered junior high school, but we'll get to that. Alright, heads up here, guys. I don't want the podcast to get too bogged down with all the narration from Daniel Stern. I'll bring it up where I feel it's warranted and give an overall overview of the episode, hitting the main beats and giving my commentary along with it. We see all these clips flash by the screen pretty fast, and it pretty much sums up the rest of the events in 1968 with more riots and a space shuttle launch and a man hovering in space and bombs being dropped. War-torn countries footage being shown. That's right, Wonder Years. Don't sugarcoat it. Now we flash towards footage of the suburbs with older Kevin explaining how he grew up in the suburbs, saying it. And this, he says it like it's supposed to be a big shocker that yeah, I grew up in the suburbs, but that doesn't mean I was sheltered from the world, the happenings of the world around me. He goes on to talk about life in the suburbs, how it, was all, how it has all the disadvantages of the city and none of the advantages of the country while we see footage of kids in the suburbs running around versus the kids of the country. The name of the show is mentioned, but in a way, they really were the wonder years for us in the suburbs. It was kind of a golden age for kids. You know, I bet it was. I grew up in the country in the 80s, so the only kids I knew close by were my cousins, but most of the time I pretty much played by myself. I only had one other sibling who was six years older than me, and by the time I turned 11, she had already moved out and shortly after that had a baby. I would have loved to have grown up in the suburbs. As an adult, I live in a city in a nice neighborhood where kids ride their bikes around and play basketball on the street. Although, lately, today's kids have decided to make a scavenger hunt game of breaking into people's unlocked cars. It's not just in the state where I live, but in other areas, too. The scene goes from black and white into color as we see a teenage boy jog a football down the street, setting it down to be kicked. The other team, including Kevin, Wayne, and Paul, break away from a huddle and get in formation. Adult Kevin, I'm just going to refer to him as this in the show points out his 12-year-old self to us, the viewers. As soon as um, adult Kevin refers to himself as a pretty fair athlete, Wayne chucks the football and Kevin gets slammed in the arm with it, which just happens to fall onto the lawn that belongs to the one and only Winnie Cooper. Winnie walks over and hands Kevin the football. She's got those these uh, cat-eye glasses that look really hip, even for 1968 which I think is better than the basic basic black ones that um, Paul has. They chat chat about the failed pass until Wayne interrupts, embarrassing Kevin, both Kevin and Winnie, when he tells Kevin to stop gabbing with your girlfriend. If I were Kevin, I'd throw a quick jab at Wayne, like, hey, at least I have a girlfriend. Even though they weren't dating, it still would have been a nice jab to Wayne. Wayne can be kind of a dick. Actually, replaced kind of with most definitely. As Kevin takes the football from her, he says right out loud, within earshot of Winnie, she's not my girlfriend, as he walks back to the boys handing off the football. Okay. Um, Adult Kevin narrates the overview of his and Winnie's relationship status dating back to when they were nine, clearly stating how they really haven't hung out that much in all of these three years. The camera pans over to Winnie's hurt expression and crossed arms. You'd think he just called her ugly the way that she just stands there looking in their direction. While the boys are in the huddle, Wayne continues teasing Kevin about his relationship with Winnie and brings up French kissing, and for emphasis, he sticks out his tongue, getting a chuckle out of the other guys. Kevin mutters butt face under under his breath, and Wayne just happens to hear him, asking Kevin to repeat himself, and when Kevin refuses, Wayne pushes him to the ground. I notice that the football is lying on the ground nearby on a white rag. Why is it on a white rag? Is that, like, for blocking purposes for the actors? You know, I never really noticed that until I started taking really good details and really noticing stuff. Paul comes to Kevin's rescue, pulling on Wayne's shoulder to get him to stop he looks so, so pathetically, I might add, I'm surprised that Wayne doesn't accidentally backhand him and send him flying with those skinny limbs of his. Instead, Wayne just turns to Paul, saying, Sorry, Paul, this is, a uh, family matter. <laughs> and goes back to wailing on kevin the camera pans outward inside the circle and we see skinny teenage boy legs one boy is wearing really ugly shorts with blue hawaiian flowers on them i know i know it's the time period we have another boy sporting converse shoes way to represent kid converse all the rage back then i'm sure One boy wearing shorts so short they should have either been outlawed or they were clearly the inspiration for Daisy Dukes on The Dukes of Hazzard. (laughs) What is with all the striped shirts? Sure, it was the 60s, but come on, almost every boy in that scene was wearing a striped shirt except for Paul and Brian Cooper. Kevin's life is spared just in time by Brian Cooper Winnie's older brother who threatens bodily harm to Wayne unless he lets up. Wayne gets up, but not before chucking Kevin on the the shoulder one last time. Adult Kevin's narration comes back with Brian Cooper's backstory. He's 19, he's working on his 59 El Camino that's set up on blocks, and he's a smoker of cigarettes. Clearly the definition of cool according to Kevin's older self. When the camera closes up on Kevin's face, we see the kid with the blue flower shorts, and he's got this blue... Shirt with New York Yankees in light gray lettering across the front. So it turns out Brian was drafted uh, drafted back in June of 1968, the present year for the show, and he packed off to Vietnam. So is he home on leave right now? That's what I'm kind of wondering. I was confused about this. This scene right here, because at the end of the episode, spoiler alert, Brian is killed in Vietnam. So is this just kind of like a flashback that happened back in June while, you know, he just before he'd been shipped off? So I'm not sure as far as the timing between the beginning of the episode and the end of the episode, because it was clearly the first day of school and so on. All right, now in the next scene, we have the house with Kevin and Paul walking in the front door to the kitchen. More like Kevin is assisting Paul by holding him up because Paul is having a slight wheezing attack. Kevin opens the fridge and shouts to his mother off-screen if Paul can stay for dinner, which he agrees to if he gets permission first. Kevin shouts back, asking what's on the menu, and Norma shouts back that they're having meatloaf, to which Paul replies, I'm allergic. I just turned to my husband after hearing this, calling bullshit. He's allergic to meat. Of course, Jeremy clarifies... How meatloaf is made up of more than just one thing. I was like, oh yeah, like eggs and ketchup. Kevin calls back asking, what else? And Norma counters back with salad. Paul just shakes his head no. We hear in the background the TV announcing more heavy fighting in -Mekong Mekong Delta and other war tactics I won't get into. I just looked this up. It's located in the southwest part of Vietnam. Kevin and Paul are sitting at the kitchen table while Norma sets it for dinner and Kevin asks her when his dad is getting home. Now, does Jack have a regular hours that Kevin would have to ask this or is he just making conversation? I'm sorry, guys. I know. I'm nitpicking, but I'm honestly curious now. It seems like a normal 9-to-5 job to me. I mean, my dad worked at a factory and it was... Pretty much a 6 a.m. to 4 p.m. type shift. It rarely changed except for when he was forced to work nights when I was young. Norma tells him any minute and between traffic and his job, he's not going to be in the best mood. So keep your nonsense to a minimum, basically. In other words, don't make him crazy. It's a typical dad works while mom keeps house scenario basically i didn't even realize wayne was sitting there with him until the camera pans outward from the kitchen table kevin remarks how he's always tense spoiler alert kevin is going to learn just why that is in the third episode in my father's office norma agrees that yes he is tense but he's not always crazy as in you know flying off the handle in rage What a good wife! She does her best to keep a chill household for not just herself, not just her husband's sanity, but their own as well. Jack walks in the door grumbling, clearly not in the mood to converse with anybody. Norma asks how work went as well as traffic, and Jack just mutters like, Work, traffic, same old, same old. Clearly, I'm not dead, so there's that. Older sister Karen sneaks in behind mere seconds after he walked in the door. How did their paths not intercept? Was she hiding behind the garage when he pulled up? She's got this large brown felt hat that she's holding in her hand, and she's wearing this really awesome brown fringe vest over a red and white tie-dye shirt. Norma chastises Karen for not coming home to help her fix dinner. Karen holds up her hands like, Chillax, please. I'm here, aren't I? No, she doesn't say that, I'm just, (laughs) that's just me, speaking for Karen. Instead, Karen just throws out the overly popular 60s catchphrase, peace, mom, okay? Norma says, peace is fine, but you said you were going to help me with dinner. All right, Norma, look, (laughs) you've known your daughter for 17 years now. You haven't caught on yet to her idle promises. A teenager will literally agree to anything if you give them what they want in return. Then Karen mentions how her mother has bad karma, and to be careful. (laughs) What? All because she wanted you to help with dinner, she has bad karma now? Did did you put a hex on her too, Karen? Uh Uh-oh, I hear sirens. That's not good. And no one drowned at the beach because it's too cold to go in the water, so it's clearly not that. Alright, so Jack comes in taking his gin and tonic from Norma, an alcoholic beverage, drink, whatever. Sitting down at the table, he looks at Paul like he just noticed he was there. I think it's funny how Paul doesn't say anything. He just kind of waves his bread at him like, hey. Adult Kevin comes back on explaining his father's role in the family like, I'll provide for you food, clothes, and such, but conversation and advice, that's your mother's department. Of course, good old Karen has to open her mouth and spit out the worst thing you could possibly say to your father back then. I'm going to get some birth control pills. I just thought you should know. She is such a damn instigator. Plus, I didn't think you could get birth control pills that easily back in the late 60s. I mean, she's still a minor. She's only, what, 16, 17 years old? Even in the show Roseanne, I mean, that took place in the 80s, which was 20 years later, she had to get her mother's permission to get birth control, I'm pretty sure. They don't just hand that out to kids. The way Jack explodes when you hear, (laughs) when he hears That, you'd think she just told him she was already pregnant. I'm surprised he didn't slap her across the face, but then that would make this a totally different show. When Jack slams his fist down on the table, look at Paul's face. He immediately bursts out laughing like it's the funniest thing he has ever seen in his whole life. Granted, so do Kevin and Wayne, but Paul's reaction is practically priceless. Then the scene switches to the theme song opening with a different song playing over the same footage. In Kevin and Wayne's bedroom, Paul and Kevin are sitting on his bed looking at Karen's copy of Our Bodies, Ourselves on the last night of school. I thought the book was just made for the show, but it's an actual book that I just looked up on Goodreads. Just boys being curious, boys wanting to know more about the female anatomy any way they can. Hey, Quinny, how you doing, girl? Uh, Quinn just walked into the room. Alright. Back in my day before the internet, I used encyclopedias at my grandparents' house to learn about things like that. Sadly, they weren't that helpful. I was looking up words, not full detailed health book publications. Norma knocks on the door, letting Paul know it's time for him to go home. How obvious (laughs) that they were up to no good because Paul puts that book behind him so fast, I'm surprised he didn't get a paper cut. Paul gets up and walks over to the door, then turns back to Kevin and says, Last night I had a dream when I went to school I had no clothes on. (laughs) <laughs> it's okay, Paul. Literally, we've all had that dream. Even as adults, only instead of it happening at school, it happens at work. Still, yikes. Kevin assures Paul that if he arrives naked at the bus stop, Kevin will let him know. Aw, what a good friend Kevin is. Paul faces the doorway again, but turns back around to face Kevin, asking if he knows what he's going to wear to the, the first Day of school. Kevin says, Paul, I have no idea. I didn't know, honestly, the guys worried about that too much. I thought that was more of a girl thing. Although, it's the first day of school in junior high, so clearly the stakes are higher. Dress to impress. Crystal Blue Persuasion plays in the background. This is a nice, mellow song. I just noticed that Kevin's socks match his blue and yellow shirt. If he lived in Michigan, he'd be wearing their football colors. All right, guys. Sorry, I had to go get my breakfast sandwich for my dinner for work tonight. And uh, speaking of breakfast, it's breakfast time on the first day of school. Adult Kevin narrates how he had been planning his wardrobe for about six weeks. Kevin, excuse me, Karen and Jack are already at the table. Karen's sitting, drinking maybe coffee, maybe, and Jack's reading the morning paper while eating some toast. While Norma is putting stuff on the, you know, setting the breakfast table with, you know, uh, cups and silverware and, you know, plates and whatnot. I noticed that about sitcoms, especially in the 80s, families having breakfast together in the morning before work and school. A lot especially on the show Full House. Maybe it was more common back in those times and the time period of the show. Growing up, I don't really remember so much except... When I lived with my aunt and uncle when I was 7 and or uh, 8, my cousins and I sat down in the morning to have cereal. I remember the prizes in the cereal box or reading the back of the box while I ate my cereal. I don't think my aunt made breakfast too often except for on the weekends when I went to my dad's. And at my dad's when I was 9 or 10, I had to wake myself up because my dad was at work already and my sister was in high school. So, you know, she left early. So, Kevin walks in, you don't see him at first, only hear his footsteps, but the shocked look on Norma's face speaks volumes. Her mouth actually drops open. Kevin's wearing this royal blue bell bottoms, uh, these royal blue bell bottoms with fancy looking black shoes, but his shirt, OMG, his shirt, guys, Clint, what are you doing? I'm sorry, she was playing with a, my robe has a string on it and it was hanging down. (laughs) You're fine, I'm not yelling at you. I'm I'm sorry, baby, I didn't, I didn't mean to. Alright, she's fine now. (laughs) His shirt is absolutely atrocious. It's got a multicolored flower print. It is so bad that Jack and Karen stop what they're doing to gawk at him in horror. Kevin turns around after dropping a cup in the sink and sees his family just gaping at him. Norma quickly snaps out of it and has the sense to ask him, You're not going to wear that to school, are you? Like, please don't wear that outside the house. I'm sure Norma is thinking, you look ridiculous, and I fear for your safety if you walk out of the house dressed like this. That shirt looks like it was made by a blind seamstress. It's a multicolored nightmare. It's got a combination of polka dots, stripes, and swirls. Did Norma just get that shirt with a bunch of other ones on sale not thinking of how it would look on him? Kevin quips with, no, Mom, I got a job as a male model. Ugh, that joke doesn't land at all. <laughs> Seriously. It fell flat. Wayne walks in from what is is presumably the door to the outside, but we don't hear a door shut. Looks at Kevin and busts a gut as he doubles over laughing. Kevin finally looks over his wardrobe, deciding everybody is right, maybe he should change. Outside at the bus stop, we see Kevin dressed in tan pants and a simple a simple light blue button-down shirt. Simple yet tasteful. Paul, on the other hand, how, does his, how did his mother let him out the door? His pants, to start with, have vertical violet, red, and yellow stripes running down. And his shirt is a flowy white long sleeve with stitch, stitched flowers running down the front. Kevin's telling him to relax. He looks just fine. Plus, it's too late. Paul asks to see the Paul asks to see the class schedule again. Adult Kevin tells us that now that they're in junior high, they'll have to start acting less childish if they want to hold their own with the older kids. Why is Paul bringing his violin to school unless he has band? But on the first day, unless he's using it to hold his stuff? Because I see Kevin holding his binder, but Paul doesn't have anything but their violin case. The other guys are testing out a ruler to measure the length of their tongues? Gross. Kevin and Paul also stick out their tongues. Wayne turns to Paul and smacks him on the head with a ruler. That had to hurt. He just whack right on the top of his head. Oh, my gosh. And those rulers back then, I thought those things were kind of sharp. Like, it could cut you. Adult Kevin mentions how there seems to be a height disadvantage since mostly all the kids are six inches or more taller than them. Kevin notices what appears to be a new girl in a tight-fitting pink and yellow top with fishnet stockings and go-go boots. But it turns out it's just Winnie Cooper, minus the glasses, who looks like she wants to make a change as well, like a new new year, new you philosophy, basically. She walks up to them, greeting Kevin and Paul. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Paul. Paul completely aghast, sputters out, Winnie Cooper? Like, he can't believe it's her. She informs them how she prefers Gwendolyn, that being her real name, to Winnie. Like, my name's actually Gwendolyn, I don't want to be called Winnie anymore, basically. Gwendolyn does sound more grown up. And with this, we now enter junior high, now renamed Robert F. Kennedy Junior High School. Exactly like half of the other schools in the U.S. at the time. What about JFK? How many schools were named after him? Hold on, guys. What about JFK? How many schools were named after him? Okay, I just looked this up. You know, when I was taking these notes, I found that supposedly there were over a hundred schools named after JFK, but I couldn't find any named after Robert F. Kennedy. Oh, well. Adult Kevin comes on saying how, as we approach those doors, it felt like we were entering the portals of manhood. Basically like a snake shedding his skin, we shake off the yoke of our youth. I remember when I started middle school in 1994. That's what we called it back in my day, middle school. I was nervous, but not too much because I knew most of the kids in my class from elementary school. I think the only thing I had to adjust to was waking up earlier in the morning. I mean, I had to get up at like 6.20 in the morning because my bus would like pick me up at 6.55. Kevin starts the day in homeroom and suddenly finds himself in the middle of a teenage sandwich where two lovebirds profess their love to to each other. The teacher looks at Kevin, realizing his last name is Arnold, that he must be Wayne's brother and also a troublemaker. She completely pigeonholes him, point blank. How many other teachers have blacklisted Wayne and now poor Kevin is guilty by association? Next, we see Kevin trying to figure out his locker. What a pain in the butt and probably the number one reason for most late to class, if not being late to class, if not the most used excuse. Am I I right? I remember a funny story that happened in sixth grade where a kid in my class wanted me to shut his locker door on, with him inside, I said basically, "Hell no, I'm not being a part of that." Another classmate didn't have a problem with it and shut the door on him. Then a janitor had to get him out. I knew I would remember that story for years to come. I tell it; it's it's just I tell it all the time. To make matters worse, a pretty girl comes up to her locker, looking in Kevin's direction, and when he finally does get his locker open, the door hits him in the head. Some. <clears throat> Some slick greaser comes up between them and orders Kevin to give him his locker combination. As Kevin tells him no, the guy grabs Kevin and shoves him back into the lockers, and Kevin hangs, hands him the paper with his combination on it. The bully throws his large knife and an enormous bag of weed inside and shuts the door, threatening Kevin to keep his mouth shut or else. Damn, Kevin is really having a craptastic first day of junior high. And it only gets worse from there. Kevin's next class is P.E., or physical education, not gym. We are introduced to Mr. Cutlip, the P.E. teacher, who emphasizes that while the teachers out there educate your minds, he educates their bodies. He's a a body educator. That sounds pervy to me. Does it sound pervy to anyone else? Overall, Cutlip is a good guy. He's just very passionate and professional about his job. He asked the question, what is a jockstrap and what can it do for you? Of course, he picks Kevin to answer. Kevin gives this complicated, long-winded answer how a jock strap is a particular type of strap constructed of strap-type material, which is utilized for the purposes of jocks. Wow. Way to be scientific and technical, Kevin. Even the PE teacher is confused by his answer. I hated PE in middle school and high school. The running, the calisthenics were horrible. The good thing about 8th grade P.E. was I had an awesome P.E. teacher. She was so nice to me and took me under her wing. One time we went bowling, and being I was so shy, she had to put me on someone else's team, which I didn't like that. But she got me a pop, and she said, Here, don't say I never did anything for you, which I thought was really awesome. Great. We finally come to the favorite part of the day, lunchtime, as Kevin and Paul are carrying their trays out of the lunch line, trying to decide where to sit. Adult Kevin narrates about the troubles of the, um, hierarchy of the cafeteria world. Where you sat and who you sat with defined you to everyone else. Then he goes on to explain the types of groups of kids at the other tables. The who's who of school. We have the cool kids, the smart kids all wearing glasses, the greasers, and of course back then you had the hippies. If Kevin had worn that short, he originally chosen, he would have fit right in with those hippies, minus the long hair. Afraid of being embarrassed, Kevin looks over at Paul, who's noisily slurping his food and tells him to act cool. Then Winnie walks up, minus her entourage, because it's only the pilot episode and she's a newbie right now. She asks to sit with them. Kevin figures that sit in, by having Winnie sit with them, that will immediately up their cred in school as she sits down. Unfortunately, older brother Wayne spots Kevin sitting with Winnie and decide, decides to stir up the pot. Coming over to embarrass them, including Winnie, which is just horrible. She's just an innocent bystander caught in the crosshairs, saying to his friend, Hey, look, it's my baby brother and his girlfriend. They found each other. Oh, my God. Seriously. (laughs) I loved lunchtime. Sitting with my friends, we had a designated table. I had a few friends, and we just, you know, we were hanging out. I remember how gross our pizza was in junior high with its waxy cheese and dried tomato sauce. The best day of the week, though, was either Wednesday or Thursday because it was chicken nugget day. I always got gravy on my nuggets. And on taco day, I always turned my cornbread into mush by pouring my milk into it, which I thought was really, really good. She's not my girlfriend, Kevin clarifies angrily. Mm, Excuse me. Wayne continues to tease Kevin, telling Winnie how Kevin thinks she's so cute. Wayne goes even further embarrassing them both by saying how Kevin told him he wants to give her a big, wet kiss. And then Wayne makes kissy sounds like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) You liar! I never said that! I don't want to kiss her! I don't even like her! Kevin fires back at Wayne, grabbing his apple and storming out of the cafeteria. Okay, saying he didn't like her might have been going a little too far, but he was worked up, so I will let it pass. But Wayne, on the other hand, is out of line with his teasing. It's one thing to tease Kevin, but now you're pulling Winnie into it, and that's just not right. Especially for those that have seen the show, already know how this day ends for Winnie, getting the worst news of her life. As Kevin heads toward the cafeteria, he is stopped by the assistant principal, Mr. DePurna, who points to a sign and asks him what the sign says. He then tells Kevin if he takes the apple out of the cafeteria, he is asking for detention. Kevin rips his arm out of the principal's grasp, which, by the way, would not happen today. A teacher slash principal grabbing a student like that without the, um, like that would basically be possibly, they would get fired. Or they would be severely reprimanded. Kevin takes off out of the cafeteria with the apple as Mr. DePerna follows behind him, finally grabbing Kevin's arm and telling him they have a problem. Which is... <clears throat> why is it people in authority always hike up their pants like it makes them seem more dominant over the other person? Kevin is acting like such a smug, smart aleck with his tone. Oh... You mean the apple? Yes, the apple, Mr. DePurna. Um, Kevin uh, tells him uh, it's outside. Oh, <clears throat> Kevin tells him it's outside the cafeteria, and you wanted it inside the cafeteria. So, getting himself into deeper crap, he chucks the apple into the cafeteria after thinking, what would Brian Cooper do? But honestly, would he do that really purposely defy authority? Sure, he seems like a rebel, but we all have our limits. He's lucky he didn't take someone out with that apple. I mean, when he hits it, when he throws that apple into that cafeteria, it hits the wall and you hear someone scream. I know, guys, I know I'm getting technical, and I know it's just a show, but it's fun to look at it from a critical point of view and just, you know, to rag on it just a little bit because I love it so much. Mr. DePerna just smiles at Kevin like that was a pretty ballsy move, kid, but now your ass is mine. Kevin immediately regrets his decision and offers to go get the apple after he throws it. It hits a wall. Good aim, Kev. And then bounces off a table or someone's lunch tray because we hear silverware clatter. DePerna grabs Kevin forcibly by the back of the neck and hauls him down to the office. We're in the principal's office now where Norma is asking Kevin to explain why he did what he did. Adult Kevin narrates how he wanted to tell her how Wayne had embarrassed him. The other kids were laughing, which I didn't see any other kids even paying attention to what was going on in the cafeteria. DePerna playing power games. What? Kevin, you weren't following the rules. That's not DePerna on a power trip. That's you having no disregard for other people and rules. And do not even think about using Winnie Cooper's outfit as an excuse either. Instead, Kevin answers, I don't know. Classic kid responds to a reason for doing something wrong when someone asks you why. Norma isn't buying that. Instead, DiPerna asks Kevin what he hoped to achieve by throwing the apple into the cafeteria. I'd honestly say instant popularity because kids are going to be talking about that for at least the rest of the day. Fred Savage's inner monologue comes on with Kevin thinking, No, butthead, the question is, why do you have a brain the size of a baby Pete? Okay, why did they do this here? Have Fred Savage insert his own inner monologue? Norma brings Kevin back to the present, telling him to answer Mr. Daperna's question. Insert Fred Savage's mental answer world peace. Kevin just mutters, nothing. Daperna lets Kevin go without further punishment, but assures him he will be watching Kevin in the future, which is not good. That guy is going to be on your ass like glue to paper. <laughs> he asks Kevin if he understands and when Kevin doesn't answer right away, Norma repeats the question. I'd like to take him home now, Jack tells Mr. DePurna. I didn't even know he was in the room until he said that. That's bad if your father has to take off from work to come to your school. Norma was there. I mean, why did Jack have to be? I mean, she did all the talking. There was no reason for Jack to be there. I'd be worried if I were Kevin if your parent has to show up at your school because you got in enough trouble warranting a call to them. You better believe your ass is going to be grass. We see... Jack cracking his knuckles. Oh, no, this is not good. On the drive, adult Kevin tells us how in 12 and a half years, his father had never hit him, even though he'd given Wayne a beating twice, which I'm sure Wayne probably deserved that. Recognizing the glazed look in his father's eyes, Kevin prepares for the worst. They pull into the drive and walk up the front walk. Wayne and Kevin come out. Guys, I'm sorry, Karen, Kevin. (laughs) Wayne and Karen come out of the house with pained expressions on their faces. Karen breaks the news in a choked voice like she had been crying for a bit. Brian Cooper was killed. At that moment, it feels like your heart literally falls into your stomach. Even though we only saw Brian Cooper, who had about a minute of scream time, his presence was awe-inspiring. He gave off that golden boy vibe, like he was a hero around the neighborhood who would mow a neighbor's lawn for free or give brotherly advice to a lonely neighbor kid. Everyone is in complete shock, especially Norm R. Everyone is in complete shock, Norma especially, who right away goes to call. Brian and Winnie's mother, to offer her support, and Karen follows her into the house. Wayne looks absolutely shell-shocked from the news. Jack puts a reassuring hand on Kevin's shoulder. If I were Jack, I'd be hugging my kids for a long time that day. Kevin decides to take a walk and process everything that went down that day. I don't think he has ever experienced death before, especially not with someone that he knows. Adult Kevin reminds us of the changing times, how back in the 60s kids could go for walks around dusk without the fear of being abducted and winding up on a milk carton, which was probably more common back in the 80s. Kevin walks to Harper's Woods and hopes that Winnie might be there the big climbing tree. Sure enough, we see Winnie on a giant boulder, hold, hugging her knees to her chest and rocking slowly back and forth, most likely in shock, trying to process the news of her brother's death. If I were Winnie's parents, I wouldn't let her out of my sight. Your one remaining child. This may be a spoiler for some who haven't watched the show, but before we, but who haven't watched the show before, but we see the Coopers go through dramatic changes in the following episodes and seasons to follow, especially in the beginning, while they try to piece pick up the pieces after their son's death, it feels like Winnie is sort of lost in the shuffle of all. All of it. Her parents' crumbling marriage, her father eventually moving out, then they move out of their house, and Winnie has to change schools. All of the while, Winnie struggles to make sense of all the changes occurring in her life. They all should have had her, as well as themselves, seeing a counselor, which I'm sure was unheard of back in the 60s when families swept their problems under the rug. When I was seven, I went through a lot of emotional upheaval. My mother had suffered a major debilitating stroke losing the ability to talk and do basic things due to complications from lupus. She was put in an adult nursing home care facility. Also, our family was split up because my dad worked third shift at a factory so he couldn't be at home with us. So I had to live with my aunt and uncle, and my older sister went to live with our grandparents. I saw my dad on the weekend, and occasionally on Sunday I would visit my mom if she was in a good mood that day but I was immediately sent to speak to a therapist to help me deal with everything that that was going on that I continued to do until my late teens. Mm -hmm. They taught me to articulate my feelings so I could better express myself. Kevin just stands there for a moment, watching her, too scared to approach. She turns to look at him, and we see her cheeks are tear-stained. Kevin walks over to to her, unable to speak at first. Really, though... What can you say in a moment like this? Sometimes words aren't enough. Kevin turns to face her and says, I'm sorry about Brian. And I'm sorry about what I said today. It wasn't true. Winnie turns to face him. I know, she tells him. They both awkwardly, awkwardly look away from each other, unsure what to do next. In a sweet gesture, Kevin takes off his green and white New York Jets jacket and gently places it over Winnie's shoulders. Then he puts his arm around her shoulder, as we hear Percy sledges when a man loves a woman, queuing up in the background, setting this iconic moment into motion. Winnie grips the jacket at the collar, trying to keep it in place. Kevin looks everywhere but at Winnie as he nervously gathers up the courage to make his move, as he fa- he faces her and she faces him, and they itch- inch closer, leaning into one another as their lips finally touch. They stay that way for a while. As the song plays overhead, adult Kevin comes on saying how they never really talked about the kiss afterward, but he thinks about the events of that day often, and again... Again and again, and he's sure Winnie does too. Whenever some blowhard starts <clears throat> talking about the anonymity anonimi- I cannot <laughs> say that word, animidity of the suburbs and the mindless TV generation, because we all know that inside each one of those identical little boxes, boxes with its Dodge parked out front, and its white bread on the table, and its TV set glowing blue in the dusk. There were people with stories. There were people, there were families bound together in the pain and the struggle of love. There were moments that made us cry with laughter. And there were moments like this one of sorrow and wonder. The scene fades to black and white as the song plays on and then fades to black as the credits appear. All right, that's the end of the episode. Alright, it's time for my flower power rating. I am giving this episode a solid five flower power petals. One, for the narration, Daniel Stern does a great job as adult Kevin. Two, for the nostalgia of the 60s, the show gets everything right the look, the feel, the overall tone of the show. Three, for the music, That fits in so seamlessly with the episode, especially the song at the end of this episode. Four, for believable family dynamics. This cast seems like they could really be a family. They have got the chemistry and they're all in sync with each other that I really, really like. And finally, five, that kiss at the end of the show. Everyone has seen, who has seen the show remembers that kiss and the song that plays overhead. They go hand in hand. Young love, heartwarming moments, the trials and tribulations of adolescent youth. Now, out of the songs I listed at the beginning of the episode, the best one for me, of course, is When a Man Loves a Woman by Percy Sledge, the iconic first kiss of Kevin and Winnie, Now, the line of the episode is going to, of course, go to the end quote from adult Kevin that plays over his and Winnie's first kiss, which I will play that clip for you. For both of us, we never really talked about it afterward. But I think about the events of that day again and again, and somehow I know that Winnie does too. Whenever some blowhard starts talking about the anonymity of the suburbs, the mindlessness of the TV generation because we know that inside each one of those identical boxes with its Dodge parked out front and its white bread on the table and its TV set glowing blue in the falling dusk, there were people with stories. There were families bound together in the pain and the struggle of love. There were moments that made us cry with laughter and there were moments like that one of sorrow and wonder. All right, now on to the segment entitled, Who Was the Worst This Episode? Well, I'm giving it to Wayne Arnold on the meter of. Wedgie being the lowest, and the boosh, a toilet swirly, being the highest, I am giving Wayne a wedgie for teasing Kevin, which, yes, I understand brothers do that, but he did take it too far by involving Winnie, albeit not intentionally. I could give Karen a broth snap being the lowest on the girls' meter of who was the worst this episode for the crack about the birth control, but honestly, it was not that bad. Um, She is getting the award for the other segment entitled Far Out Threads for her awesome brown fringe, leather vest, and red and white tie-dyed long-sleeve shirt. I absolutely loved that. If there was a worst-dressed category, maybe I'll add it later, I would definitely give it to Kevin with his number one choice of back-to-school wardrobe, the dark blue bell-bottom pants and multicolored blind seamstress shirt. Here's some fun trivia-slash-observations from the pilot episode from TV.com. In the first dinner sequence, the kitchen appliances are set up opposite from how they are throughout the rest of the series. The sink, oven, and counter are all are set up opposite from the side with the kitchen door. I noticed this last night, you know, and I showed that to Jeremy when I was watching it. In gym class, the uniforms contain a different logo than they do in the rest of the series. In the pilot, this school logo is a wildcat standing for the Kennedy Wildcats. After this episode, the school logo is an Indian. Alright, now let's move on to episode two entitled Swingers, which aired on March 22nd, 1988, which is almost two months after the pilot originally aired. Let's take a quick ride in that DeLorean back to March 22nd, 1988 and see what was going on back then. In that special week of March, people in the U.S. were listening to The Ma- Man in the Mirror by Michael Jackson. Beetlejuice, b- directed by Tim Burton, was one of the most viewed movies released in 1988, as well as other movies as, such as Frantic with Harrison Ford, Hairspray by John Waters, Bloodsport, and Stand and Deliver with um, Lou Diamond Phillips. Here's the episode summary from IMDb. As Winnie Cooper deals with the passing of her brother Brian, Kevin and Paul contend with the ups and downs of sex education. Feeling that Coach Cutlop isn't teaching them what they need to know, Kevin and Paul try to get their hands on a copy of the book, Everything You Want to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask. Time for some goofs and trivia. The photo inserts... um from The Beatles, a.k.a. The White Album, are shown hanging on Kevin's bedroom wall while he and Paul are reading through their textbook. This episode takes place in September 1968, but the album wasn't released until November, which um, <clears throat> takes place in September 1968. Kevin and Paul steal a copy of the book Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex but Were Afraid to Ask. By David Rubin, M.D., from the bookstore. However, the book wasn't published until June of 1969. The pictures drawn on the blackboard in the gymnasium scene that Coach Cutlip um, draws changes infrequently. Neil Marlins, one of the show's creators, went to Walt Whitman High School in South Huntington. The maroon and white Wildcats mascot and logo that is used in the Wonder Years is the same as that of WWHS. In this episode, Kevin says he has known Paul for. <laughs> Paul, since Paul was 36 hours old. However, we later find out that Paul's birthday is March 14th, and Kevin's is March 18th, which makes that impossible. Let's get on to the music of this episode. What it For what it's worth, performed by Buffalo Springfield, Young Girl, performed by Gary Puckett and the Union Gap, Tell It Like It Is, performed by Aaron Neville, and... That's pretty much it. <laughs> I mean, it does say In My Life, which is performed by Judy Collins, but I tell you, I looked. At, I, I watched that episode. I didn't hear that song at all. Oopsie. And also, just to let you know that up on the fan page on Facebook for the Looking Back on My Wonder Years podcast page, there will be um, a trivia question for episode one. And there also will be one up there for Season t- 1, Episode 2, Swingers. So, and you can also go to Instagram, that, uh, and Twitter. I believe the questions will also be up there. Um, if you want to you know, tell me your experience of starting junior high, did you have any uh, any funny stories, any, any mishaps, anything like that? And I will also be doing an uh, episode uh, trivia question of the week. So you guys can answer that and whoever answers I'll give you a shout out on the podcast for the next episode Alright let's dive right into episode 2 of season 1 entitled swingers The scene opens up on a shot of a cemetery, and far up in the right-hand corner on a hill, we see people gathered around a casket at a funeral as the song, For What It's Worth, plays in the background. The Reverend gives his eulogy while adult Kevin's narration is filtered in, saying, Brian Cooper was the first person I ever knew who wasn't old who died. You know, that's sad, too, because even Saturday, That because kids are probably used to it being old people who go first and not young people. The camera pans across the faces of strangers and then Kevin's family until we get to Kevin. The narration continues as he says, I guess we all have that moment where we realize that even someone who's basically a kid can cease to exist. And we're never the same after that. But it wasn't just Brian's death that had changed me. It was also Brian's sister. I hadn't seen Winnie since that night we kissed in the woods, but I hadn't been able to think about anything else. The camera zooms in on a close-up of Winnie with her family dressed in a pretty blue coat, the collar and button um, lined with a blue, uh, blue pad uh, pattern, which is really, really nice. And she's wearing a somber expression, of course. You know, her brother was killed, so. Now... We move on to the Arnold kitchen, and Norma's worried because her jello salad dessert didn't set right and it's more liquidy than gel. Everyone's hanging around the kitchen, waiting to head across the street to the Coopers for their wake and bake. Jack tells her to forget the jello, they have the ham to take over there. Norma keeps stalling asking for just five minutes, she'll put ice cubes in it and to help gelatize it gelatinizes, The camera pans around the table, seeing how the other members of the family are dealing with the grief after the funeral. We see Karen blowing her nose, and typical in all Wayne fashion, he's occupying himself by seeing how many pretzel sticks he can fit into his mouth and ears. Well, that's one way, I guess. Meanwhile, Kevin is pacing back and forth with the, the ham, alternating between thoughts of Brian and, uh, thoughts of Winnie as Jack continues to peek out the curtains out the door. Kevin finally gets frustrated enough that he yells at his mom to get a move on. Come on, mom, let's go! Everyone just stops what they're doing and look at him. Like, where did that come from? Who would be that much in a hurry to go to Awake and Bake? Note to listeners This is not the first and only time We see Kevin fly off at the mouth It will happen many times Over the course of the show's run And it's the one thing That I have come to really dislike About Kevin's character In the next scene We're inside the Cooper's house And Kevin's looking for Winnie He finally sees her As she comes around the corner As Kevin figures out The best way to approach Winnie His mother bends down And hands him a plate of food To offer to Winnie to eat Kevin walks over, saying hi and offering her the plate of food. At at first, Winnie tells him she's not hungry, but she relents when he suggests she should try the ham. Mm -hmm. Kevin's internal struggle is heard when adult Kevin narrates his confusing feelings while in close proximity to Winnie. Mm -hmm. While all this is going on, Kevin sees the ghostly vision of Brian Cooper in the doorway, who lightly teases Kevin about wanting to jump his little sister at his funeral, but laughs it off, telling Kevin he's a man after his own heart. But that it's not the right time, and to give her a little space, and she'll come around. The scene changes, and then we are now in the gymnasium of the school, as we hear Coach Cutlop talking about the female reproductive system, and Kevin is... Of course, he's in PE class... Adult Kevin comes on and tells us among the greatest historical milestones of 1968, perhaps the greatest was the advent of sex education in schools. As uh, Coach Cutlup is writing on the chalkboard, we hear the, all the boys giggling, and he whips around, pointing to the kids and telling them if he hears any giggling, any smirking, this class is over. The kids, especially Paul, are really excited when Cutlip starts drawing the reproductive system. Well, I hate to break it to you, Paul, but the female reproductive system, that's all internal. The ovaries, uterus, and fallopian tubes, the creation of life in the form of a single egg. There will be no talk of penises going into vaginas and the spreading of a seed. It's all pretty much technical stuff. I would think they would eventually cover proper hygiene, body odor, masturbation, pimples, and voice changing. You know, the stuff that boys should really know about? I remember I was 11 back in 93, and we had to get a permission slip signed in order to attend sex education. My dad was fine, he didn't have a problem with it, but my grandma was strongly against it, you know, being she was a Catholic. She's a Catholic woman, so she was against it, that it shouldn't be taught in schools. In the end, only I and one other boy in my small class were the only ones that had their permission slip signed. I remember watching a video on Ryan White telling how he got the AIDS virus and how not to to, to contract it. Like, you can't get it from a drinking fountain. You can't get it from sharing a cup with someone else either. But you could possibly get it by exchanging saliva through kissing or, and um, exchanging a bodily fluid. So basically, you know, sex. Um, then we watched a health video on our changing bodies, both boys and girls, both talking about periods and masturbation and body odor, etc. Cotlib draws a picture that's supposed to be uh, represent the uterine. Uterus, ovaries, and fallopian tubes, but it just looks like a cow's head with ears, which is the exact answer a boy gives when he asks when uh, Cutlip asks someone to tell him what the ovaries are. A boy suggests drawing the whole lady so they can see where everything goes. All the boys get excited because they're picturing boobs in their head, but instead he just draws a big square around it with a head and um with hair and arms and legs. Yikes. Adult Kevin tells us he understands why Coach Cutlip has never been married, because any man who saw women that way would have no reason to be. Cutlip goes on to continue through the cycle of ovulation, and we see the kids all stretched out on the gym floor, yawning, ready for a nap. He concludes with 28 days and turns to face the class, ending with, and that was the story... Of ovulation. He asks for questions and a boy asks, When do we start football? He hands them their textbooks entitled Health and Human Sexuality. The kids are surprised to be getting textbooks for PE class. The teacher warns them only read chapters one and two. Don't read ahead. I repeat, do not read ahead. Outside of school, now we see a bus pass by as Kevin holds the textbook as he walks with Paul and some of the other boys on the way home from school. Reading aloud, chapter 14, The Human Reproductive Cycle. Some boys tease Kevin asking if he's horny. Well, what 12-year-old boy isn't that way about those things? Kevin looks across the street to Winnie's house as Winnie's getting out of the car and he walks over to say hi to her and make small talk. Kevin asking when she's coming back to school. She says not till Monday. So the thing I was confused about is the fact that I'm guessing because Cutlip had said we'll continue this the next segment on Wednesday. I thought it was like the middle of the week. But then, of course, he's saying, hey, when are you coming back to school? She's like not till Monday. And I'm thinking, you know, it's still early in the week, but no, it's Friday. So, um, they're just make pro- most likely going to make plans for Saturday then. Okay, so that makes sense. But, uh, she says not till Monday, but maybe they could hang out tomorrow. They make plans to hang out in the afternoon the next day as Paul calls Kevin back over across the street. <clears throat> in Kevin's room, we see him and Paul reading from the textbook as a Young Girl by Gary Puckett plays overhead. Kevin reads aloud of a woman's body is constructively adaptable to a burgeoning human life. Kevin tells Paul... This book isn't very good. (laughs) Well, of course it isn't, Kevin. The book is meant to educate you about the human reproductive system and creation of life, not entertain your fanatical pleasures of curiosity about boobs, vaginas, and various positions of sexual intercourse. Wayne strolls into the bedroom, notices they're boning up on their sex education, grabs the book, and flips through it, stating that he bets the guy who wrote the book has probably never been to second base. He goes on to school them in the baseball terminology of first base kissing, second base um, touching a boob, (laughs) breast, whatever and third base means going all the way, having sex and that by 7th grade at least all guys get to second base, hence means second base to cop a feel touch a boob. Well, first off, the girl has to have something for a guy to get to second base with which Kevin does narrate while most of the girls they knew didn't have any second bases. Telling them if they really want to get the dirty lowdown on sex, they need to get the book Everything You Wanted to Know About Sex Were But Were Afraid to Ask. Well, here's what I say. Forget that. I say get the Joy of Sex book. It's got pictures. It's got, you know, illustri- instructions. <laughs> I I've seen it. I was... I was showed it, and it's it's pretty, uh, those pictures are, they leave nothing to the imagination, let me tell you. Kevin asks Wayne if he's read it, and Wayne scoffs, saying he doesn't need to go... He does not need to. The great ones go on instinct. Which Kevin and Paul like, oh yeah, me too. I go go on instinct too. Like, I bet you do, boys. I bet you do. The next morning, they go to the bookstore and they see the book displayed there, just out in the open, like probably being it's a bestseller, which Kevin, or Wayne says it is a bestseller. So, of course, it's going to be on display. And the next, um... They just stand there gawking at it It's like Which of course Is going to arouse the suspicion Of the elderly Sales clerk at the front of the store Because it's basically A clear blue A clear view Shot of this display of books The guy can see Like what are these little boys Doing in here looking at these books Literally They are up to no good I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not like it was, they were looking at Fifty Shades of Grey, let me tell you. I picked that up in a bookstore. I have not read it, but I, well, I flipped through it. Um, (laughs) but, there's some graphic stuff in there. That leaves nothing to the imagination at all. Um... So Kevin notices the sales clerk just kind of looking at him like, what in the world are you boys doing in here? And he yanks, uh, Kevin yanks Paul into a row of books. He explains that they should get other books along with it so they don't look like perverts. But when Kevin glances at the front counter again, a young 20-something-year-old woman has taken the place of the old man. So maybe he, like, went on break, or maybe that was his granddaughter or something. Kevin decides... You know, forget it. Just forget it. It's too risky. But Paul takes a copy of the book, and we see him zip it into his jacket and orders Kevin, get the other books. I'll meet you outside. So, I really, honestly, don't think that lady would have sold them the book, even if they had gotten five other books. She would have probably said, um, you kids, you're not getting this. (laughs) You can put it back. (laughs) Um... Kevin pays her with a $20 bill and in a hurry runs out with these books. He basically picks up, like, Ivanhoe and, um, War and Peace or something like that. Like, oh, yeah, that's, she even comments, like, oh, wow, you're doing some pretty heavy reading here for a boy your age. Like, yeah, that's some, that's some stuff there. Um, but he runs out without getting his change, She's like, you got you you got twenty dollars here. I think the total was like maybe like less than five dollars for the books or so or maybe seven, I don't know. Once they get home, it's lunchtime, so they stash the book under Kevin's mattress. As Kevin sits down to lunch, we see him shoveling food into his mouth. Like, he's running late for work. Norma tells him to slow down. Paul shows up at the door, and Norma chastises him, saying he couldn't have possibly walked home and come back that fast. Kevin asks to be excused, and Norma tells him, no, finish your lunch, and then you have to do the dishes. Now, on the weekends for lunch, my husband and I, we pretty much just use paper plates. I mean... The dishwasher, I'm pretty sure, was not invented back then. But, I mean, we use regular plates for dinner. Since, you know, I'm responsible for doing the dishes. My husband does the laundry, which is a really awesome setup. Because, uh, I don't like going in our basement. (laughs) I'm not a fan of that. The only time I ever go down to the basement is to put stuff in our freezer downstairs. But, um, since I'm responsible for the dishes, I don't want to have to do them, you know, twice. I'll just do them at the end of the evening. Kevin and Paul get the dishes done super quick and um, race to the, his bedroom, only to find the book missing from its hiding spot. They hear Wayne chuckling nearby and tell him or notice him flipping through the book and telling them they're too young to read it And he will have to preview it for them As Wayne is flipping through it, he sees something and suggests Kevin try it out with Winnie Or, or this Now, I, I think Winnie might like this one, though <laughs> Like how gross <laughs> Kevin tells Wayne to shut up And Wayne asks Kevin, how far are you going to go with her, Kev? And he suggests for a home, run, a home run, basically. Oh, my goodness gracious. Wayne tells Kevin that he'll, <laughs> he'll read one to him that sounds like a lot of fun. At that, that, uh, Kevin is boiling with rage. And he jumps Wayne, knocking him to the ground. And they wrestle on the floor. Hearing the commotion, Norma opens the door and demands to know what is going on. Then her eyes fall on the book. She gasps. Oh, my God. She quickly collects herself and asks Paul to leave. Paul heads to the door to go, but not before picking up the book and moving to the doorway. But Norma stops him, holds out her hand, he relinquishes the book, and leaves the room. Hey, boy, you had some guts. You know you were not getting out of that house with that book. Let alone out of that room with it. You can practically feel the tension and awkwardness in the room. When she asks how they got the book, Wayne tells her, Hey, it's not mine, you know, ask Kevin, he got it. Because he has no idea, and she asks him if that's true. After a beat or two, Kevin mutters, Yes. Norma asks Wayne to leave them alone, muttering to himself, "Eh, Kids, today, uh," he walks past. Norma walks over and tells Kevin how disappointed she is in him. You know Norma, today's kids have probably done half the stuff that's in that book by Kevin's age Not to mention things that most likely did not even exist back then He's a curious boy, he just wants to know things Do you know what's interesting? What if Kevin's dad had walked in on, you know, he was the one instead of Norma To walk in on this and see that book I bet he would not have said anything, he would have told them to knock it off he would have looked at that book like, oh, yeah, okay, carry on. <laughs> Adult Kevin comes back on to narrate how that, at that moment, he felt like the lowest thing on earth. He was a pervert, a thief, and a, and a snake. And how before that, he'd always been that sweet, innocent little boy. But now, his mother couldn't even bear to look him in the eye. That is, that is, Like, when you know you've done wrong, and you're being, you know, yelled at or or talked to, and then when that parent says, I am so disappointed in you, you literally probably feel like the lowest of the low, like, you've fallen from their good graces, and it's just, it's a rotten feeling. It's like, how, how do you come back from that? But, uh, she tells him, it's not so much that you're reading this book. That's, that she, you know, she gets that. He's curious and all. But here comes the kicker, guys. She asks him, but what were you doing in my dresser drawers anyway? Kevin just stands there dumbfounded. His mother found out her mistake pretty quickly because nothing more was said on the matter. So, um... Kevin is then out on the curb, waiting for Winnie to come home so they can hang out. Then they head out to the baseball field, rounding the bases. They walk across the field, heading towards a little hill. Kevin tries to put his arm around her shoulder, but instead smacks her shoulder blade, telling her she had a bug on her. And she thanks him. On the little hill, both knowing the real reason they came there, they stall by kicking up dirt with their feet as Aaron Neville's song, Tell It Like It Is, plays overhead. Each asks each other what they the other wants to do, and finally settling on just being kids for a little while longer, while putting aside these grown-up romantic feelings for one another for another time. And with that, the episode ends! Alright guys, it's time for the Flower Power episode rating! I'm giving it 3 Out of five flower power petals. One. For the importance of sex education in school. Now, I graduated from school back in 2001. So, I don't know what today's practices are as far as sex ed goes. They are most likely a lot different than what they were in 1968. Because I'm sure they talk about birth control and condoms and HIV and other STDs and how to, you know, protect yourself. Which... When you're 11 years old, back then they didn't, the, the kids weren't thinking, I don't think they were thinking of going all the way back then. But then again, what the heck do I know? I didn't grow up back then. <laughs> for showing, two, for showing how the aftermath of episode one for Brian's funeral uh, and how everyone was coping instead of jumping ahead in time and glossing over it. Three. Three. For Kevin and Winnie deciding to hold on to their innocence a little longer instead of giving in to their adolescent desires. I had enough to uh, off two pedals. One for Paul stealing the sex book. Because I'm pretty sure <laughs> if they do inventory, they're going to see, well, I have so many books here. I should have this. And something's not adding up. So... Yeah, I tell it. Do not go back to that store ever again. Do not show your faces there. Um, and the other one is because Norma just assumed Kevin had taken the book. He had gotten it out of her room. Sorry. Um, no one was. Uh, so you know, I mean, if she had just like, oh, here, let me check. What she probably did. After she took that book, she probably went right into her room... Pulled open her drawer... What? Two books? But, you know, they didn't say anything about it to him after that. I mean, how do you... How do you do that? You know, you probably just like, okay... This is over, let's never speak of it again... And just move on with our lives. Um, so, in my, in my eyes, for this episode... There will be no who was the worst rating because, uh, I mean, I guess I could give, give Paul a wedgie for stealing that book, but, you know, his curiosity won out. You know, he wasn't thinking clearly. He, he wanted that information. He didn't have the internet back then. He was going to get that information when we were high hell, come hell or high water, but they didn't even get to read the book. He went out to all that trouble to, ta- to steal that book. And he will never have that information. <laughs> so, um, for the best song of the episode, I am going to choose Tell It Like It Is, that played at the end by Aaron Neville. It really did a good job of illuminating Kevin and Winnie's internal struggle of fighting their adolescent urges of romantic temptation. mother figured out her mistake pretty quickly because I never heard from either of my parents on that topic again. We seem to have a tacit understanding that they wouldn't mention my book if I wouldn't mention theirs. Alright, I hope you enjoyed that clip. Well, stay tuned for uh, the, f- the next uh, podcast I do, which where I will be discussing episodes 3 and 4, My Father's Office, and "Angel." To stay connected to the podcast, you can visit the Facebook page at Looking Back on My Wonder Years, a Wonder Years podcast. Also, Instagram, my Wonder Years podcast page, at LBOM Wonder Years Podcast and Twitter with Wonder Years Pod. All right, well, until next time, peace out, wonderlings. I hope you have a wonderful weekend, and I will see you next time with two new fresh episodes. figured out her mistake pretty quickly because i never heard from either of my parents on that topic again we seem to have a tacit understanding that they wouldn't mention my book if i wouldn't mention theirs